Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Science Snacks. It's me, your science liaison with a face designed for podcasting, Eric. It should be noted up front at the very beginning of the episode that this is an explicit episode and is for adult ears only. So with that in mind, let's talk about our research for today. So today's research comes from the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Um, And, I mean, did you know that there are types of orgasms? And they're quantified. At least the current research is trying to quantify them. Uh, So this comes on the heels of a uh, research piece that was put out by IFL Science, and it was was just a journal article that referenced these papers, but actually leads us down a pretty fundamentally interesting uh, line of research. So let's talk about orgasms. Anecdotally, um, when I entered college, I had to, uh, you know, talk about like what types of classes I would enjoy taking. And Mrs. Miller, who was my freshman year advisor, uh, was, was kind of more elderly woman and, um, was asking me, look through this list of biology classes and tell me which ones you would like to take. And I said to her with my mouth, Oh, orgasmal biology sounds really interesting. And there was a very long pause. And she said, I think you mean organismal biology. And I don't remember the rest of that session. I like to imagine that I just blacked out at that moment. Um, But today's topic is actually about orgasmal biology, which I think is pretty cool. (laughs) So let's put on our science hats and actually talk about what orgasms actually are. Uh, so there's a difference, and it should be noted, between how to have an orgasm and the actual like orgasm types themselves. So like whether that's through you know something like clitoral stimulation or like uh, anal stimulation or uh, vaginal or like blended, uh, there's different types of orgasmic patterns that can occur. Uh, with that, that's not what we're talking about. So we're not talking about how to produce an orgasm. We're talking instead about orgasm patterns, um, which generally arise as a form of rhythmic patterns of the pelvic floor movements that occur during climax. So how does an orgasm feel? And the answer, pretty surprisingly, is that it's radically different, but they can be quantified into different types, or so the claim is. So let's actually talk about the research papers themselves. So there's a handful that I'm referencing. Uh, first and foremost, there's an, a journal article that was put out by the, the kind of people at the center of this, which are lioness vibrators. Uh, they are a type of rabbit-style vibrators that claim to be able to produce a, uh, a, an orgasm that is then trackable that you can then use to uh, track and trend your orgasms, that use precision sensors to let you literally see your arousal and orgasm. That's, that's on their site. Uh, then the claim is that they have experiment, understand yourself, and have better orgasms. After all, as the saying goes, never measured, never improved. 
And I quite generally tend to agree with that statement. I mean, my my working out, my my weight training, my martial arts, everything I've ever done had to be track and trended in order to be improved. If you don't track and trend, you don't know where you're at or if you're going up or down. So with that, they wanted to uh, take their data and start producing patterns out of it. So the Lioness people produced a journal article, and then we're also looking at two other articles. Uh, the other articles are Women's Orgasms Determined by Auto-Detection of Pelvic Floor Muscle Contractions Using the Lioness Smart Vibrator. Uh, this is one that was posted in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Um, and then we have another one that was from 1982, where... They uh, posted a piece to the Archives of Sexual Behavior. So this piece um, is where the research originally arose about types of orgasm. Um, and they've identified four different types of orgasms, um, one of which can only be achieved in men, which is type 3 orgasm. Type 1 and 2 have been recorded, uh, supposedly, inside of both men and women. And type 4 has been recorded only in women. Uh, so that's, that's the gist of where we're exploring today. So the piece itself talks about um, going through the science of orgasm. And they said like, okay, well, we produced these sensors and we wanted a biofeedback vibrator. And we had this, you know, kind of position where we could take this data and have it, you know, given to the individual, right? But you can also take data and as long as the individual permits it or it's anonymized or something like that, you can take that data and then pull that and start making tracks and trending with it, tracks and trendings with it. So the idea is that they wanted to get to is there some consistency in pelvic floor contractions that are what make an orgasm? And so they're like, okay, first off, an orgasm pattern has already been kind of established based on this 1982 research that, you know, he, it's this rhythmic pattern of floor, uh, floor pelvises and all that. And to go back to the research itself, which um, I had to track down, uh, they took 11 women and had them manually self-stimulate to orgasm, each on three different occasions. And pelvic contraction pressures were measured by an anal probe and a vaginal probe simultaneously. Uh, so near the perceived start of orgasm, as they describe it, a series of regular contractions began in nine women. And then they, you know, anal and vaginal contraction waveforms were synchronized with each other. The number of orgasmic contractions occurred in each lumen. So they start describing about like how you measure force versus time. And so three of the women's orgasms consistently included only a series of regular contractions, and they called this type 1. For six other women, the orgasms consistently continued beyond the regular series with an additional irregular contraction. Um, and that, that kept going, that irregular set of contractions. So they called that type 2 orgasm. And then they said type 1 and type 2, like, like I said before, have been identified in men. Two women had no regular contractions during the reported orgasms. This pattern, they called type 4, 
has never been recorded in men. So they said that women of different types showed marked differences in orgasm, duration, and number of contractions. Uh, identification of these types and in subjects is important and meaningful for comparison and contraction parameters in different studies. So they're like, okay, look, we, we just did some starting research on this. And we've looked recently at like what makes a good paper, what makes something reliable. If you go back to the uh, Tetris trauma kit, right? They were using small groups. They were using no control. Um, there's, I don't see any control group mentioned here. Um, no, no way to identify like, you know, um, is it, they have no control. They just have a handful of individuals who are self-stimulating. Um, with that, they also don't have very many people. 11 people is not a statistically significant group. So there's already kind of problems here, but also you can kind of say like, well, you know, they're just trying to feel out what um, potential research is, is in here. And they had them do it on three separate occasions, which means 33 total data points, right? So that's a little something more. But then you're having the same 11 people do it. That's neither here nor there. So... What makes a good science is not any of those things individually. It's the combinations of those things. You can have small sample size as long as you use it appropriately. However, there's already kind of a challenge here. They might claim that like their control group, you know, would be measured, you know, before the women self-stimulated or maybe after or something. I don't know, honestly. So that's the research that the paper is referencing. They're saying like, oh, hey, previous research established this. Uh, so what they said is like, let's take some charts and visualize it. And they have a, a chart here from what would be uh, the output from their vibrator. And it looks like an extreme, you know, set of like close, tight knit peaks, uh, as you can imagine, like a contraction, a contraction, a contraction. And then a gradual separation of those peaks as maybe that, that contraction slows and, uh, and becomes less and less intense. Um, and they call that an ocean wave pattern because it comes on in the form of a wave. So they're saying, okay, so the research we know is limited because it was mostly done in relatively few studies on few subjects. And that's where they want to come in. So it turns out you can easily measure these pelvic floor movements with the vibrator that they have uh, been uh, pushing forward. And in the comfort of your own home, no need for bulky lab equipment, no, no strange probes. So they're saying we're actually starting to replicate some of the research, but we're also seeing different things from our data, patterns that fail to fall outside or that appear to fall outside of the boundaries of the previous research. So next they go, well, we hesitate to say they're new discoveries because we're, <laughs> we're just a little old company. But then they push their, their idea and they've made it into fun logos. Um, so the idea that they have now is that orgasm patterns come in what's called the ocean wave, the volcano, and the avalanche. And they say we're not specifically trying to correlate them exactly to what was found in the research at this point. And it's mostly just for fun for our users right now, but also like 
this preliminary data we want to push to become something more over time. And they had hoped to work with researchers to advance this field that they say is neglected, um, which, I mean, is probably pretty fair. Um, the field of female sexuality research is a neglected field. <laughs> so let's talk about what these patterns look like. So the ocean. Uh, they describe the ocean wave looks similar to like a sine wave, like if you were, uh, I don't know, looking at like a sound wave or something like that, where it comes in kind of this, this wave-like structure of just the peak and relax, peak and relax, peak and relax. Uh, the pelvic floor contracts and releases multiple times. The number of times can kind of vary, um, first quickly, and then it slows down until it returns to rest. So that's the buildup and then the release, right? Well, they say the volcano's much different. The volcano orgasm is one, um, extended pelvic floor movement, instead of a series of pelvic floor movements that kind of look like the ocean wave orgasm, like one very tight, very profound, big extended pelvic floor action. Okay, so they describe that one that's different instead of a sine wave, more of an explosion or a hard contraction. And then there's the avalanche. The avalanche is similar to the ocean wave in that it's a series of pelvic floor movements, but unlike the ocean wave, it starts from a high point and then gradually relaxes with like the, the tenseness and the, and the small peaks and then a gradual just release of, of uh, that tension. They've also been able to define, uh, we've been able to define three patterns so far, but we're also sure there's more. Uh, we are excited to not only successfully reproduce results past research, but also start finding things that go beyond it. That's, that's their thing is that they want to see, here's the three that we've identified. Can we find more? So they say it gets more interesting. Different people have different patterns of orgasm but they're consistent within themselves. One person only has one orgasm pattern. It's similar to having your own blood type, they say, but someone with a volcano orgasm won't have an avalanche. That's not to say that having multiple patterns is impossible, but so far they haven't seen a case of someone having multiple patterns or switching patterns even over the years of data that they claim to have. Um, so far... An ocean wave orgasm remains an ocean wave, and the ocean doesn't become an avalanche over time. Um, so then they're saying, like, it's different physical experiences and different mental experiences. So these are the types of descriptions that they uh, have generally uh, had people report. Um, so, so someone that has an ocean wave, this would be the description that they have given. Uh, it feels like I'm on the ocean with the waves moving over and over. Whereas a volcano, almost every muscle in my body tenses up as a pleasure greatly intensifies, and then there's a huge release. I know it's over when I can relax. And then lastly, the avalanche. My body starts shaking, and then I suddenly explode into orgasm. My body snaps and sort of spasms in a good way they have in parentheses <laughs> over and over again until it eventually starts to calm down before finally letting my muscles rest. So... This brings up a fair point. Why does this matter? This means that every person's experience of pleasure is different. That there's no one way to experience pleasure. Simply put, <laughs> you do you. Is what, that, that's cheesy, honestly. But think about the common argument. Like, 
how do you know that when I see blue, it's the same color that you see? That's a very common, like, you know, teenagers ask that, and they think they're, they're you know, deep. Like, how do we know? We're all just taught this is blue. Like, but instead, how do we know that we all experience pleasure in the same way? I mean, obviously there's some differences, and, and even, like, our perception of it, our interpretation of it. Some people are consumed by pleasure. You know, uh, sexual uh, experiences for some can be addicting, more so than alcohol, or maybe equal to alcohol, depending on, you know, which kind of person you are. It can be something that you're always constantly thinking about, or for other people, have no interest in. And that's fine either way. The real question comes in to, like, how do we know that our experience is the same as someone else's when having pleasure? And the answer to that is, it's not. <laughs> and, and very simply, uh, there's differences not only in the strength of the contraction, not only in the types of contraction, as they're talking about here, the frequency of those contractions, and a variety of other data points. How do we know that someone's experience of an orgasm isn't greater than ours, isn't worse than ours? So they, they say, okay, so what's next? Well, they have a lot of questions. Like, um, so far they've explored a variety of questions. How a concussion can affect your orgasms. Um, how edging can affect orgasms. That is to uh, kind of... Uh, teeter um, along the edge of you know release and to draw it out in a way that ultimately results in maybe a bigger release um, there's questions about what is the best way to orgasm uh, how can cannabis lube affect orgasms which has been something that's recently been popularized how cbd lube uh, can affect orgasms similar in, in thought um, and then they, they have discussed, do Yanni eggs actually make your orgasms better? Uh, the answer is no, <laughs> but they said in the uh, spirit of experimentation, they tried it anyways. Uh, so that's the general article that they, they push forward and they say, here's our product and you can buy it. Okay. So thus gets us through our first article. Um, so let's go ahead and switch over to the actual paper that we're interested in testing and looking over today. And that was the paper that was not the article directly from the company, but instead one posted in the Journal of Sexual Science. Women's orgasms determined by auto detection of pelvic floor muscle contractions using the Linus Smart Vibrator. This was produced by uh, Jay Faust um, as the lead author on it. And this paper uh, is from 2022. In fact, May 11th of 2022. So fairly hot off the presses, uh, at least in terms of science. <laughs> so they start off with the introduction um, that the uh, Bluetooth biofeedback devices, whether that's your watch or whatever, has become like a very popular thing of saying like, hey, Here's my physiological response. I use my watch all the time to track my heart rate or make sure that, like, you know, I'm not in a room that could damage my hearing or, you know, hanging out in a place that could. Uh, but then they're saying, like, in the past, pelvic floor contractions during sexual self-stimulation in women have been detected using electrodes placed on the surface of the skin. 
They're saying the Lioness biofeedback unit is a new smart vibrator that self-stimulates and detects the force of the pelvic floor contractions in two sensors at either side of the instrument that collect continuous pressure in grams force uh, and temperature accelerometer and gyroscope measurements at a sampling rate of 12 times per second or what's also referred to as hertz uh, and it connects by bluetooth to a secure internet server so they claim from which women can download their pelvic floor output during periods of self-stimulation. All right, so they say, oh, okay, that's our premise. We want to validate the ability of the lioness vibrator to detect the orgasm patterns of individual women reliably to a control condition. The control condition they establish is the lioness inside the vagina, but without self-stimulation, which Kind of seems weird, <laughs> but I guess you do need, uh, I mean, you do for sure need a control, but, and I don't know what that control would look like. So since I don't have a better idea, that makes sense to me. Uh, so they say that a sample of 54 women who use the Linus Vibrator 2.0 were obtained after informed consent for their participation in the Linus sex research platform. Uh, so women were asked to provide outputs from one control condition and several orgasm conditions. Uh, for orgasm conditions, women were instructed to self-stimulate to one orgasm and then turn the unit off two minutes after the orgasm was obtained. This allowed for a blind raider to determine when orgasms occurred in the outputs and to observe the type of changes in pelvic floor contractions that preceded and followed each orgasm. So go home, masturbate, and then <laughs> record it so that a blind raider can read and see if there's similarities in the orgasms. And so uh, their results, they say each woman had a predominant pelvic floor pattern of contractions at orgasm that followed generally one of three patterns. And they said the wave, a short burst of pelvic contractions, um, and then a volcano, an orgasm preceded by an increasing upward pelvic floor tension, and an avalanche, higher pelvic floor basal contractions maintained throughout self-stimulation, but a downward contraction profile during and after orgasm. In many cases, they said that women's subjective perception of the orgasm termination occurred after the cessation of the pelvic floor contractions, although prior to smaller contractions, the quote-unquote aftershocks, that occurred as the pelvic floor muscles returned to basal state. So they said that the orgasm, uh, the women's self-reporting when they feel um, that the orgasm has ended, uh, occurs after the pelvic floor stops contracting once it's released but then there's these these little aftershocks that then you know eventually put it back to its resting pattern um, they say that these patterns are consistent with early reports by masters and johnson of the three distinct orgasm patterns in women um, masters and johnson as a, a point of reference um, is the individuals who um, reported in 1982 so there's uh, consistency, at least, in their, in their claims. So then they move on to their conclusion. 
And they say the Linus allows researchers a new opportunity to examine orgasm or sorry, orgasm patterns in women within more ecologically valid environments that are conducive to sexual responding, like one's home. It's very <laughs> I I can imagine that it is probably a challenge um, to get people to reliably orgasm in a place that might not be uh, as comfortable and might have like things like probes and stuff stuck inside of them or, or on them in, in ways that is fairly unfamiliar. Uh, the device, they say, has good test-retest reliability and should be able to detect differences in orgasm patterns in response to treatments for sexual arousal, desire, and orgasm disorders. So then we get to something real juicy, something real exciting. In their disclosure, yes, this is sponsored by industry slash sponsor, SmartBot Incorporated, DBA, Lioness, Oakland, California. Isn't that interesting? It was paid for by Lioness. <laughs> so they had some research that came out and they're like, ah, oh, yes, that's good test, retest, reliability. Um, they have a clarification section here that I think is interesting too. Um, industry funding only, investigator initiated and executed study. Um, and they said any of the authors act as a, a consultant, employee, or shareholder of the industry for SmartBot Incorporated DBA Linus. So isn't that interesting? They, they're saying, okay, yes, we were funded by Linus, which to be fair, who else would fund them? Is there is there like a grant somewhere that like has you know just the the interest of of lioness in mind? No, but then they're like, okay, look, we were funded by the industry, but our investigator initiated and executed the study. So yes, we were funded, and yes, we produced results that agreed with. Hey, this is a good, good tool, <laughs> but we want to claim that it was never affected by. But if, let's say you did, you were a company, and you funded a study, and that study said, hey, actually, we couldn't verify your data. You wouldn't post that. <laughs> you, you might look at a different research company. You might say, hey, somebody else do it different. Tell us how you would do it. And... I think the real key to this is in the number of individuals, which I think isn't bad. 54 women, isn't is it, that's pretty good. And especially because they're asked to provide one control condition and several orgasm conditions. So let's say several, I don't know, means 3, 7, 20, I don't know. But let's say that it means at least 3, right? Because no one would say 2 is several. Um, so then that puts us in the, what, 162 range, 162 data points, and then 54 control points. That's pretty good data. But I think maybe the control group with just the um, item self-inserted, uh, like, I, I think that that's probably... That's something, right? Like the lioness inside of the vagina, but without self-stimulation... Like, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that control. Um, 
That being said, I would I would love to see like it controlled against um, uh, positive control. So something where like maybe you do the electrodes thing and and things like that. Well, let's see if the same woman I can read says like okay she should have like a, an ocean wave pattern right, and that's measured through traditional electrode means right. But what if like we can have her use the lioness and it gives us the exact same thing or maybe it gives us something different altogether cross verification not just that it's internally true but that it is verified from outside sources i think that there's a little bit of questionability in the the control there Um, however something worth noting is that this article doesn't show many graphs doesn't show me any tables, doesn't show me how they measured, doesn't give me any actual data, just says, here's what we measured, thanks, trust us. You can purchase the PDF, and you know if you have academic uh, access to it, you can do that, but the average person won't have that. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this is not use my scientific, you know, academia uh, access. I wanted to say, here's data that you could go look at. That was a goal with this podcast is how do you look at data and say, like, this is good science. This is bad science. How do you look at an article and say this is good or bad? So one of the things here that that this article is different for, we've never done one where it was like corporate sponsorship of articles. Uh, and I mean, corporate sponsorship is a way that science gets done, that we move forward. Think of, you know, the, uh, the types of like electronics or like pharmaceutical or like engineering research that gets done and how those wouldn't get done without corporate research. However, corporate research has to be, uh, verified. It has to be peer reviewed, um, this article, uh, I don't know if it was peer-reviewed. <laughs> it doesn't look to be. One thing worth t- discussing um, is impact factor. So different journals are rated according to their impact factor, this IF factor, uh, impact. So generally, they're called um, good whenever they have like a uh, an impact factor that is at least three and the, the real credible journals have impact factors that are 10 or more. Impact factors usually uh, are reflective of the yearly mean number of citations of articles published in the last two years of a given journal. So if a journal is producing good science, other articles, other, other papers will cite that science and then do research for it. And thus it, the scientific journal itself has a larger impact. Uh, so that's the, the idea is good journals have big impact and you can say like this journal is good or bad based on its impact factor. Um, so the impact factor of the Journal of Sexual Medicine is 3.802, um, which isn't great, but it isn't the worst. <laughs> Um, and that was from 2020, uh, is rate 22nd out of 85 journals in the category of urology and nephrology. Uh, so, I mean, it's in 22nd place of 85. So again, not the worst, not the best. Uh, with that, we also have this, this challenge of like, I don't know if they're actually peer reviewing 
uh, and it doesn't super look like it from what I can see. So if you have some group that you know isn't doing peer review or in their in their posted research, um, that research is trash. <laughs> it's no good, uh, and it's fine if like you know you are producing something, but it has to be reviewed. That is a standard of science: is that you need to have your stuff reviewed by a peer. So that's uh, that's kind of where this article leads us. We have some research from 1980s uh, about the different types of orgasm. And it was very preliminary and very small sample size. And then we have some research now coming out, now that you know we have more sensors, more tools available to us uh, using a specialty vibrator that supposedly is confirming those types of research. And then we have a paid-for study with uh, 50-ish individuals producing several different data points each uh, that supposedly also confirms this idea. What do we think? I can tell you what I, I think. I personally enjoy the idea that there's these different types of orgasms, that there's um, some consistency in which we have the experience of orgasm. However. I think that this is a very small sample size and their number of cited sources, their research, their connectedness to other research is very limited, which isn't bad. That happens in new and breakthrough fields. And they, while they're hesitant to talk about themselves as breakthroughs, it's also worth noting that they, uh, there's not a whole lot of things that they can reference. When I see related articles, uh, anxious and avoidant attachment, vibrator use, anal sex, and impaired vaginal orgasm. Uh, That was a piece that was also posted in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Uh, They also have a piece, use of pelvic floor ultrasound to assess pelvic floor muscle functions in urological chronic pelvic pain syndrome in men. So I think a lot of these tend to be around uh, disorders. The next one, association between pelvic floor muscle strength and sexual function in postmenopausal women. So it seems like much of the research only is there once there's a problem or there's pain. Which makes sense. I mean, like, that's where, you know, we look to get help. We don't get help when there's pleasure. Uh, We just enjoy the pleasure. So that being said... Uh, I think that I enjoy this discussion of this paper, but I also take it with a grain of salt because while the data makes sense, it also seems a little simplistic and seems early in its face, which doesn't make it bad, but it is one paper, one study, a handful of people that you know they have as data points, and more research needs to be done. But hey. That's enough for me. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget your safety glasses.